0: We are in the book of Hebrews, New Testament, and we're in chapter 5 is where we left off. So if you have your Bible, you can open there, Hebrews chapter 5. We'll look at that text here in just a moment. In the gospel narratives, of which we have four gospel narratives that recount the life and ministry of Jesus outside of his birth account, We are only given one very brief glimpse into his life before his public ministry began. It was at the age of 12 years old. 12-year-olds, I have a 12-year-old, 12-year-olds here. 12 years old, we get one little glimpse. Maybe you're familiar with this story. It's when his family went down to Jerusalem for Passover feast and he got left behind. traveling in that big caravan... He stayed there as a 12 year old in Jerusalem for three days, and his parents came back only to discover that he was in the temple. And it described him like this He was found there, sitting amidst the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. He was learning. He was learning, and they were amazed at his answers and his understanding. It's a fascinating story, it's the only little glimpse we have into his childhood, and there's something, there's something unusual about that story, about that account. He's certainly precocious, we see him there, and he had a, even at age two, he had a strong sense of God as his father. Don't you know I had to be about my father's business? Even there, he had a strong sense of God as his father. So there's something unusual there, but there's also something quite ordinary, quite normal. He's learning as a 12-year-old, growing in his understanding. And that account ends with these words. i put it on the screen for you. And he, Jesus, went down with them, with his parents, came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Continued to grow in knowledge and wisdom, and he was in subjection to his parents. Now, we, we could speculate all we want about the childhood of Jesus, and that, that's all we get. And it is fascinating. It's just my observation that as Christians especially probably as evangelical Christians, we sometimes struggle to understand and really appreciate the humanity of Jesus. The full humanity of Jesus. Often we are forced to defend the deity of Jesus, rightly, fully divine. So often that's where we focus, the deity of Jesus, that he was fully God, and we believe that and affirm that. But we struggle sometimes to understand his humanity, and we often, as I've said in the past, tend to think of him as somewhat superhuman, like a superhero. Certain things just didn't phase him. He looked human, kind of human, but not really human. (laughs) And we fail to fully appreciate that he lived fully in the limitations and weakness of human nature. He voluntarily did that. Yes, all the while God in the flesh, but as he lived in the consciousness of the man Christ Jesus, fully in the limitations of a human nature. He grew physically. He grew in wisdom and stature and knowledge. And he was fully, as that man, he was fully dependent and submissive to his father by the power of the Spirit. He lived authentically like that. He came in full obedience to his Father to do the Father's will. Complete dependence and submission to the Father. Listen to these texts. I'll just put up a few of them from the Gospel of John. John really highlights this theme that he came to do his Father's will. John 4. Thirty-four. Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's why I've come. John 5, and verse 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. Just take that in. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I came to do His will. I don't seek my own will in the man Christ Jesus, but the will of him who sent me. John chapter 8, one more of these. Verse 28, Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative. But I speak the things as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He lived his life with this complete submission and dependence on the Father by the power of the Spirit in the human limitation, the weakness of human nature. And in that, I think what we fail maybe to fully appreciate is how exceedingly painful and difficult it was for Jesus in this complete submission and obedience. Not because he didn't love his father and trust his father. He did, absolutely. But because of the enormity and nature of the father's will for him. The cup that he is to drink. What it is for him to obey his father, to submit to him. He, he needed supernatural enablement by the Spirit to live the human life of obedience that the Father ordained for him in order to become our Savior. That, for us, probably is hard to fully appreciate. Again, we often think he was on autopilot from his birth on, and it's simply not true. I start there because it's this perspective that the writer of Hebrews the book we're studying now in Hebrews 5 has in view, as he describes Jesus as our high priest, that's what we're in, this all sufficient high priest. He is describing his complete dependence and obedience as the Son unto death as what qualifies him to become our high priest. To so what qualifies him to be our high priest, the all-sufficient high priest. So we're in this section now of Hebrews, this big section, and that's my title for the big section, the all-sufficient high priest, chapter 4, 14, all the way through chapter 10, verse 18. It's the heart of his letter as he is going to describe and define and show us the high priesthood of Jesus. And I said many times, it's unique to the book of Hebrews. Nowhere else in the Bible do we get this. And it is a very rich section. He is our high priest. He's going to draw out what that means and the implications. This morning, we want to take one final look at Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 10. As he begins to unfold the high priesthood of Jesus and explains it, he begins by relating it back to, to the Old Testament high priesthood. He's going to compare and contrast Jesus' high priesthood with the Old Testament high priesthood where it all began, this idea of priest and priesthood. Let me read verses 1 through 10 of Hebrews chapter 5. You can follow here. You can follow on the screen. "'For every high priest taken from among men "'is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God "'in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins.'" He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, you are my son, today I begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, when he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to him who was able to save him from death and who was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a priest, high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. The new high priest and the old. So that's what he's doing here in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. He is comparing and contrasting old high priest with now Christ high priesthood, so the Structure is very simple. The outline there of this chapter, first, the Old Testament high priesthood. A general description and qualifications. That's verses one through four. We looked at that. Remember, God God instituted the priesthood, not any man. This was God's idea. He instituted the priesthood. And the priest, the basic role of a priest is to represent the people before God. He's taken from the people appointed by God, and he represents the people before God in order to make atonement for sin. That's the great role of the priest, because that's the great need of the people. In my Bible reading this year, I'm I'm reading through the book of Leviticus right now. A lot of fun. Leviticus, it's full of details. But this is where this priesthood is established in all the precise offerings, all the detail, and... You come away from that book realizing how dangerous it is for God to dwell amongst his people. How is that going to be possible? How will we ever come back to the presence of God that we are created for? Well, he institutes a priesthood to be the representative and atonement needs to be made. So that's where the whole priesthood idea comes from. You can read it in the Old Testament. So that's how our author starts in verses 1 through 4. He's just describing, giving qualifications of the Old Testament priest. And he mentions there that they are able to deal gently with people because they themselves are beset with weakness. They're cut out of the same cloth. They are sinful. And so they have to offer sacrifices first for themselves and then for the people. And now the second part, Christ high priesthood. And this is what we're looking at, verses 5 through 10. Similar, yet much superior. The first, the Old Testament priests, simply prefigure Christ. And what we learn is all of that that I'm reading in the book of Leviticus and Exodus and Numbers, all of that with the priesthood in the tabernacle and the sacrifices, and the offerings, and all the ritual, and all the ceremony, for 1,500 years was only a shadow, was a picture of what Christ is and who he is. That was God's purpose for all that, showing the need for atonement, the need for a priest, so that when Christ comes, we have categories to understand who he is. And now he's here. And his priesthood is superior. It's greater. So much greater that we don't need the old priesthood anymore. We have a final great high priest. Our superior high priest. So that's what we're looking at. Verses 5 through 10 here. Our superior high priest. He's going to give qualifications for the priesthood of Jesus the superior high priest. He gives, I'm going to list four qualifications for the priesthood, for Jesus to become our high priest. And these parallel what he described of the Old Testament priest, but he's going to do it in reverse order. The point of these verses, 5 through 10, is to show that Jesus has been set apart for a fully effective high priesthood. And he's been set apart through his obedience, his complete obedience. The author of Hebrews is showing us how the eternal preexistent son, that's how he opened the letter, that's who he is, how does this one come to be exalted as son and high priest? How does that happen? Jesus... The Son son was not the High Priest before the Incarnation. He was not the High Priest at His birth. He was not the High Priest at age 12. He was not the High Priest at the beginning and during that public ministry. How does He come, become? That's the language here of Hebrews. He becomes the High Priest. There are qualifications or prerequisites. Remember those in school? Before you can take that class, you have the prerequisite. My daughter's doing that in college right now. Before you can take that class, there's certain things you have to qualify before you can take certain things. Now, I, I know probably many of you in this room are engineers. Different types of engineers, I know. But if you want to become an engineer, there are qualifications. There are prerequisites. There's a path to that, right? First college. you got to get into college, be accepted into the program, the engineering program, and then successfully complete that four years and get your degree. And then depending on what kind of engineer I know, then maybe work under a, a professional engineer for a certain number of years and then pass your exams. And then finally, you earn your license. You are a professional engineer. There are prerequisites. Well, so too With the high priesthood, with Jesus, the son, to having the certification high priest forever. Right? So, what were those? That's what he's giving us here. If you can see it through that lens, there are four of them. We looked at the first two, so I'll just mention the first two and then we'll look at the last two. One, his divine designation. His divine designation. God the Father said, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110, verse 4. We thought on that. This is God speaking to the Son. The Father to the Son in the book of Psalms. Psalm 110, that's what's so unique about that Psalm. God to the Messiah. You are my Son. You are my Son and you are a priest forever forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And we learn that it's upon this exaltation of Christ that he is designated as high priest. God does it. The Father designates him. Now, he starts there because that's where he ended with the Old Testament high priest. They have to be appointed by God. And then he gets right to Christ. So also Christ. And he quotes that Psalm. He starts there, but that's where he's going to end also. Look at verse 10 being designated by God as a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. So he's going to end there. Now in between, he's going to give us the steps, if you will, to his high priesthood. These prerequisites to his high priesthood. This is how he comes to be set apart as high priest. This is how he comes to be designated as high priest forever. His designation finally comes at his exaltation, but how does he come to that? How did he become a high priest? So here's number two, second qualification: his offering, his offering, his submissive life unto death as a his priestly consecration. That's verse seven we looked at, which is a hard verse. He says in the day he's referring to his humanity, that is his earthly ministry, the weakness of his flesh, in the days of his flesh. When he offered up, and that's the key word, he offered up. So it's it's this sacrificial language of the priest. He's offering up. But here, he's not thinking specifically or only of his death. And he's not even thinking here of the atoning value of that death. We're going to get to that. He hasn't got to that yet. He's thinking here of Jesus' complete obedience, dependence on his Father to do his will. So he describes it in these ways that he prayers and supplications with loud cryings. It's a way to describe his his dependence on his father throughout to submit to his father's will. That's what he's doing. Now, that's going to climax in the cross, the ultimate obedience of Christ as he offers himself up in obedience to his father. But this is his priestly consecration. Now, remember the Old Testament priest Before they could offer sacrifices for other sins, they had to offer sacrifices for their own sins because they were sinful. Not him. He has no sin. He doesn't mean to make sacrifices for himself, his entire life is that offering. He's offering himself in complete submission and obedience to his Father as his priestly consecration. And it says at the end, we saw it, he was heard. He was heard because of his piety, his godly reverence, his obedience, his submission. He was heard. He needed divine enablement to submit to his father, to go through, to drink the cup. And he was heard. God did answer him. God enabled him. And ultimately, that answer will come at the resurrection when he raises him out of death unto life. So we saw those. Here's the third prerequisite or qualification. Number three, his learned obedience. His learned obedience. Verse 8. So right after saying he was heard because of his piety, his godly reverence, he says in verse 8, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. In contrast to the Old Testament high priests that I just said who were beset with sinful weakness, Christ learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Notice how our author writes this statement. It is intentionally arresting. To arrest you. Grab you. Although, it reads like this, although being the Son... Although he is the Son. Now when he says that, Son, it's informing that is everything he's told us about the Son from chapter 1. He is the eternal, preexistent Son, equal with the Father, the same essence. That's who he is, the eternal Son. And although he is the Son, he learned obedience and it takes our breath away. How does the eternal son learn obedience? It's the incarnation. It's what he has in mind here. His, his, during the days of his flesh. Yes, he's the eternal son. But this eternal son, as he comes in flesh, is going to learn obedience from the things he suffers. It is paradoxical, isn't it? The eternal son learn. How can he learn obedience? But that's what he's trying to grab us with. Now, later later in his letter, in chapter 12, he's going to talk about us being sons and how we learn obedience through discipline. We learn obedience, righteousness, through a father disciplines his son. Here, the sense is, son of God, though he was, this is what F.F. Bruce writes, quote, even he was granted no exemption from the common law that learning obedience comes by suffering. And yet, it's different, because he had no sin. So we ask this question, what sense did Jesus learn obedience? Our author has insisted, we just read it, same context, right? Chapter 4, verse 15, he was tempted in all things, yet without sin. He was never disobedient. But this kind of language, when you read it, makes us uncomfortable, because we just normally think it implies disobedience. Say, well, they learned obedience. It means they weren't obedient before, but they're learning. That's what our kids weren't obedient. Now they're learning obedience, meaning they struggle with that sometimes, and we need to enforce it. That's what we hear when we hear those words, to learn obedience, but not so with Jesus. Yes, we learn obedience by suffering from disobedience, but not him. So how Did he learn obedience? Again, going back to the days of his flesh in his true humanity, I'll say it this way: He came to know what obedience is like as he practiced it in the crucible of suffering. He came to learn it, to know what it is in experience as he suffered. He experienced obedience as a proven, tested reality that he did not have before in his humanity. So yes, he's learning obedience, not from disobedience to obedience, from untested, unproven to reality, to experience in the midst of suffering of what it is to obey his Father. He learned, he experienced what it is to trust his Father to patiently endure suffering. Suffering was the teacher. He would not have known, he would not have experienced this obedience except through suffering. That's what he means. He had to learn obedience this way through suffering. So that, I'll say it this way also. Secondly, his suffering occasioned his humility, his patience, and his trust in his Father. It was his suffering that was the occasion for those qualities, those obedience, patience, humility, trust in his Father. John Owen, the great Puritan, writing on this verse, says, quote, "...through his sufferings, Christ learned obedience," As he had occasion to exercise the graces of humility, meekness, patience, and faith. While these graces always lived in him, they were not capable of being exercised in this special way except through sufferings. He learned obedience through the things he suffered. It's Really remarkable. Now that suffering, as we know, climaxes in his death in the cross, which is itself the ultimate act of obedience. Even Paul uses that kind of language in Philippians 2, that he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He became obedient to his Father. It climaxes there in the cross. Why was that necessary? Why was it necessary... For the man, Christ Jesus, to learn obedience in his sufferings. To gain this experience, this knowledge of what it is to obey in the crucible of suffering. It was necessary for him to be our high priest. That's what he's getting at. Specifically, to be our sympathetic High priest, The kind of high priest he is. He is fully identifying with us. So like the Old Testament high priest, remember he could deal gently because he was beset with weakness. Well, so much more Jesus. Not just deal gently. Not just have sympathy and attitude, but come to our rescue. To be that kind of high priest because he experienced it. He learned obedience through suffering. He knows what that is. And so he's able to come to our aid. He was like us. He was tempted, we learned back in chapter 4, he was tempted in every way as we are to not trust his father, to not obey. Considering the magnitude of what he was experiencing and going through, he had to learn obedience to be our sympathetic high priest so, so look back there at chapter 4 because this is his application really all throughout this letter as he's showing us the grandeur of Christ even in his humiliation. Verse 15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness but one who is tempted in all things as we are yet without sin which makes him our perfect high priest and our sympathetic high priest. He's, he's able, he, because he obeyed and he, he overcame, he endured it and overcame, he's able to empower us to continue to trust, to continue to obey. So, verse 16, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Draw near, because this is the high priest you have at the Father's right hand. Are you enduring an unusual suffering this morning? Or a difficult obedience that feels... Really impossible. Draw near. Look who's at the throne. It's The throne of grace. Receive grace and mercy to help from our sympathetic. He knows exactly what it is to learn obedience in the crucible of suffering. That's the kind of Savior we have. So he's saying, draw near. Draw near to him. Let's move to number four, last prerequisite qualification. Number four, his perfection, his perfection. So verse eight says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered, verse nine, and having been made perfect. (laughs) Having been made perfect. Again, we're uncomfortable here because as we read that, it can be confusing. We think, well, if you have to be made perfect, it means you weren't perfect. Move from imperfect to perfect, right? That's not what he means in the moral sense. So it's not moral progress from imperfection to perfection. He's thinking here of his qualification as a high priest vocationally. So let me go back to my analogy for you engineers here, your prerequisites of going through. And then comes today, you get your license because you've met the qualifications all the prerequisites are met that's the idea of perfection here through the whole course of his life all the prerequisites to being qualified as a priest and so he has been perfected so that he can be designated now he's got the license high priest forever he's been perfect. he's met all the qualifications what was necessary That's what we've been reading. What was necessary for him to be perfected. So so what does it mean? Let Let me say it this way. Through his obedient life unto suffering and death, his obedience unto suffering and death, he has become fully qualified, or we could say equipped or fitted as our high priest. He has been made perfect. In fact, that very word, perfect, in the Old Testament, I said I was reading through the book of Leviticus right now, and Leviticus describes the consecration, or we could call it the ordination of priest, when God would set them apart. And the word that's used, it's kind of a strange where it says it, to ordain them means to fill their hand. Or fill their hand. God's, God's giving them, filling their hand. They're, they're a priest, but how that word is translated in the Greek Old Testament is perfected. It's the same word. This is the word that's used always for that ordination, being set apart, filling the hand of a priest. That's what he has in mind. He's not moving from an imperfect morally to perfect morally, and now he's perfect morally so he can be high priest. No, he's all the qualifications, his obedience unto suffering and death, he is fully equipped now. He has been made perfect to be our high priest. So his being made perfect is the result and follows the whole course of his earthly obedience. Not just his incarnation, his incarnation is the major first step. He has to fully identify with us, but all of his faithful perseverance through the whole course of his desperate life. So, this is what he meant. If you remember back chapter 2, verse 10, he used the same language. Speaking of Jesus, chapter 2, verse 10, he called him the pioneer of our salvation and said, God, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting for God to perfect the pioneer of their salvation through suffering. Fully fitted, fully qualified as high priest. So it includes must include the whole course of his earthly obedience unto suffering and death. And secondly, it must include his resurrection. That he's no longer subject to human weakness and mortality. Having been made perfect. He's going to get to that, but it's implied here in having been made perfect. Yes, obedience unto suffering and death, but then being raised out of death to that indestructible life. Again, in contrast, this is what he's going to go on to tell us in the book. In contrast to the Levitical priests who come from Aaron, they continually have to be replaced they die right it's just ongoing replacement of the priest having been made perfect Jesus he doesn't die he has an indestructible life that's part of that perfection his obedience unto suffering and death and his resurrection he's never removed from office he holds it permanently his priesthood based on his indestructible life. So if you just peek ahead there, look ahead to chapter 7. We'll get to this as he explains Melchizedek and that whole issue. Come to that. But look at chapter 7, verse 16. Speaking of Jesus, this other priest, who has become a high priest, it says, not on the basis of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. He's been perfected. The power of an indestructible life. That's why he holds his priesthood permanently. So look all the way down, chapter 7, verse 28. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. There it is again. Fully qualified through his obedient life unto suffering, death, and resurrection, exaltation. He has been made perfect. All the requirements are fulfilled, are met. And so, back at our text, it says in verse 10, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. All the prerequisites are met. He is fully qualified, and now having been made perfect, fully qualified, he is designated. He's appointed. Upon his resurrection exaltation, he's appointed high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek which he's going to go on and say I've got to explain that because that's pretty obscure and it is and he's going to go on and spend a chapter to explain and then he's going to explain what's it mean that he's our high priest forever what's he doing what's that mean for us so that's what he's going on to explain we'll get to see it in its richness. But for now, I want to finish. Just lastly, we'll look right here because he hints at it right here with the outcome. Having met all the prerequisites, having been perfected and designated, notice what it says right there in the middle of verse 9. Having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. There it is. I'll say it like this. He is the source of eternal salvation, that is, an unending enjoyment of life in the unhindered presence of God. (laughs) That's our salvation. And it's eternal. This is what he's going to go on to explain in more detail, the nature of this salvation and how, how he has become the source of it. But just enjoy it right here. He has become, He became, to all who obey Him, the source of eternal salvation. Again, in contrast to those Old Testament priests and the Old Covenant, and those sacrifices, it was always temporary. God made provision for a temporary atonement, a temporary covering of sins, so that the people are not destroyed. It's symbolic, it's outward, but it had to be repeated over and over and over again. That day of atonement that I was reading about this week, Leviticus 16, once a day that the writer of Hebrews is going to have in view so much of what he explains, was every year. And the priest, the high priest, would go in and he'd have to shield his going in with incense picturing the presence of God there and he's going to go in and just he's going to go in and he's going to sprinkle blood on that atonement cover and then he's 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 getting out and then next year same day same time do it again and then get out year after year after year get it there's nothing permanent here there's no eternal salvation. That is, there's, there's no permanent access to God. It has to be repeated. So that, that's all leading to here. Christ now, the perfect high priest. He has been perfected. He holds his priesthood forever. And so he becomes the source, not of a temporary reprieve, but of an eternal salvation. And that will mean, as our writer will go on to show us, What does that mean, this salvation? What will it mean? A permanent, complete, perfect atonement, sin, cleansed, wiped away, and access to God, unhindered access to God. That's what that will mean, this perfect salvation or this eternal salvation. And he is the source of it because he is the only high priest who has been perfected this way. There is no other source of this eternal salvation. It is Him and Him alone. And notice who it's for. You see it? Last thing. Verse 9. Having been made perfect, He became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation. This salvation is available and certain for all who follow Christ in faith and obedience. You hear it? For all who obey Him. I remember in the book of Hebrews, to obey Christ is first and foremost the command to trust in him. To trust all that God has done in him in providing for our salvation. It's a command. Repent and believe. So as we trust in Christ, as we believe in Christ as our Savior, we are obeying Christ. And then all subsequent obedience, and there is subsequent obedience, flows from that. Trust in Christ. It is available, and it is absolutely certain. Are you enjoying it? Are you obeying Christ this morning? Believing that He's the only Savior, your Savior you have come and following him as your Lord. Are you actively following Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning? If you are, there's a certainty. He is the source of this eternal salvation. Your sins, this atonement is complete, forgiven, and we have the certain promise of the presence of God, of this life with him. Do you adore him, this Savior? who went to this length to rescue you, to become one of us, to be perfected, to be our high priest. We need no other. May we worship him. Let's pray this morning, and then we're going to sing of our great high priest. Let me pray. Oh, Father, (laughs) thank you for your son. He became sin, who knew no sin, that we might be his righteousness. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Perfectly suited to be our high priest, the source of eternal salvation. Oh, may we draw near now with confidence to the throne of grace, because we have one seated, our high priest forever our sympathetic high priest. May we draw near to delight in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.